Welcome to the Manufacturing Employer Podcast, where we talk workplace culture and all things related to the strategies that drive exceptional environments for employees. You'll hear conversations with those in the manufacturing space tasked with making their workplace better. Employee engagement, benefits, onboarding, hiring, we'll be discussing the working experience from top to bottom. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Employer. I'm your host, John Franco, co-founder of Gorilla76. We are the industrial marketing agency. We help manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. On this episode, we have Jim Narduli, Chief Operating Officer at Pasco, a really fascinating company right here in St. Louis. They provide intelligent robotic automation solutions. I met Jim a few weeks back this past May when my business partner, Joe Solon, and I stopped by his facility for a tour. I was fascinated, and I mean, certainly by the technology, but as I started to see more and more about the, learn about the culture of the company, I, I got really excited. It was kind of one of those presences you could just feel when you walked in, throw in no office doors, retention rates that are off the charts, and being genuinely impressed by the kindness of everyone I met. As soon as I got in my truck, I thought to myself, I need to get Jim on the show. His work experience is fascinating, and instead of reading it all to you, I'll have him touch on his highlights from being a partner in the restaurant business in Denver to running a company at the forefront of the manufacturing tech curve. Jim, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you and excited to kind of dive into this. Well, thanks. Uh, Of all the introductions I've ever had, that one's the most recent. I always try to get you. I didn't get you. I thought I'd get you on that one. Anyway. No, that was good. I, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I think that there's nothing really special about what we've done here, other than the fact that we try to live up to one very simple rule that we have. Actually, I had a poster made. It's our break room. It says, do the next right thing. And most people, if you surround yourself with decent people, and I'm not saying alike people, but people that share a certain respect for each other and respect for what they do, they know instinctively what the next right thing is. And for me, that's really the foundation upon which we have done what we've done here with this company. You mentioned my past, and I do have a really unusual career path. You know, I grew up in a family coal mining and road building business in Pittsburgh, left there with 26 yeah. years of my life, and that's all I really knew, and just struck out on my own with various ventures, and some of them successful, some of them eh, learning experiences, you know? Yeah. I like to say that we talked about this in some chat somewhere, I think in LinkedIn or something, but I have come to understand that that wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from mistakes. And so we encourage people to take risks. We encourage people to stick their head above the foxhole. And if you fail, if you make an error, whatever it is, just learn from it. You know, you make a mistake. Don't worry about it, but learn from it because now you have to do, you and the company have to work to get to remedy whatever the the, the result of your error was. And I try to tell people to think of that like tuition. You paid the tuition. I love that so much. You you paid the tuition, but you will get the education from it, right? And then work to help others learn from it as well. But to go back just for a second, I think what allowed me to get here was this very circuitous path I've taken in my career. 
you know, I've really never been a great employee, although I have been an employee. I can say the same about myself, Jim. I'm probably wouldn't be my own favorite employee. Yeah, <laughs> I know? get it. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, man. I, you know, and it's like my early days, you know, I don't want to go too far back, but let's go to the 80s. You know, I went to culinary school. I always had this bug. I loved food, the restaurant experience. And through working with my, my family's business, I was very fortunate to take some international trips. I remember checking into these really great European hotels and thinking, okay, this is the way to live. This works. And then having these fantastic meals, you know, whether it was Paris or London or wherever it might have been, that really set the hook in me. I, I didn't know it at the time. You know, I just thought, hmm. This is pretty awesome. Things like the things I ended up in culinary school in San Francisco and very, again, very lucky. I was very lucky to be taken under the wing of a guy named Jean-Michel Judy, who in his prior, in his career was the uh, uh, Metro Hotel service privé to the president of France. So he was in charge of all of the hospitality and dining in the Palace Elysee. And as far as how high you can go in this in this business, that's the that's as high as you could go. There's nothing above that, right? I mean, because France is essentially the culinary epicenter of right. modern cuisine, you know. And, and to, to be responsible for the whole of the Palace Elysee is just an insane thing. I met him by accident over a scone at the culinary school, like the first week. It, and I, he had a table and it was kind of a joint table kind of place. I, may I sit here? Sure. Got to talking. It turns out he's the director of education from school. I didn't know that. And um, amazing. He taught, yeah, he taught what's called front of the house, you know. And uh, his lectures would be there was a test every day on the prior day's lecture, quiz, test, whatever you call it, which I find to be a fascinating way to learn. But he got into the philosophy of it. You know, he would talk about the differences between Apollo and Dionysus. And you know, we would talk about all these things and how all of these things. These concepts led to the provision of hospitality. He made that real for me. So when I graduated, I had both sides of the house in. And even though I, I was in the kitchen, I kind of ran my places from the kitchen. And, but, but that taught me, you know, we went on this. I got very fortunate. And of course, like Thomas Jefferson said, the harder you work, the harder I work, the more luckier I seem to get. You know? But through a series of events, I ended up as a partner, and we started the second microbrewery in Colorado back in the 90s. And it was a big place. And instead of going for the typical beer, and the partners wanted to do a Creole Cajun kind of a Cajun place, I said, no, 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 we can't do that. We're going to do a high-end Creole place. And we're going to price it above what the students can afford, because Boulder's a, a hell of a co- it's a hell of a town, but it is definitely a college town. And if you start getting all those rowdies, then are you lose control of the environment? I, I knew that firsthand. So we essentially priced it above. And so we went on a two and a half hour wait for like almost three years. Holy it, cow. Yeah, it was just insanity. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. It was one of the first like microbreweries, right? In well, 1995. So Okay, so at the beginning of it. The only other one that I was aware of was done by a friend of mine named John Hickenlooper. It's called the Wincoop Brewery. It was down in Denver, so we were like 35 miles apart. But he was first, as far as I know. 
He went on to become governor of Colorado, for God's sake. Wow. Yeah, no, but he was a very big help. And what did I know about building a brewery? I knew, you know, he used to say, what I know about brewery wouldn't fill a pint glass. You know, I mean, huh. it just, well, we learned, you know, and we enticed a young Mike master brewer away from, I can't remember, left-hand brewing. They, they were responsible for it. We called Sawtooth Ale. And it was really, so we got, we got Brian Lutz to join us. And from there, the business went nuts. I think you'll enjoy this. I know you're in the market, you're, you're guerrilla marketing kind of dude that you are. Yeah. A couple of things we did there. We wanted to attract people that had a high spend. So we worked with an, our attorney and we created a fake subpoena. It was authentic looking. We got these little evidence bags. We have spent a fortune making them really high quality poker chips. I think they're worth 10 bucks. We put three or four of them, can't remember now, in this evidence bag and we bought the mailing list. This is back when you bought mailing yeah, lists. Yeah, yeah. And um, we subpoenaed, if you will, every member of the, the bar of Boulder County and gave them essentially. And it was like, you're, you know, we had fake charges in there and they had to show up at our address and show cause or whatever. Hey, it was like lawyer written. They, I, I think we got every one but six of those poker chips back, meaning everybody redeemed them. And then from then on, we had this extremely busy bar full of lawyers and then judges. I mean, it was like, and these people drink like fish. And so that put us on the map as the place to be. And then the food was good. The food was crazy good. So that's one like thing we did out of the box, you know, and I paid people on the order of double what other people would pay them. And so, for instance, I probably should say this on a podcast, but I'm 63 years old, I'll say it anyway. We like to have attractive people at the front door, right? And lawyers responded to that pretty well, right? And so I did have them. And you know, even the hosts would make three to four hundred dollars on a good night. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was crazy money back in 1995. But we handed off helium balloons. And we had them tethered, tied to some heavy object, like a bolt or a nut or a washer or something. So they wouldn't all end up in the rafters. And we put, these girls were really clever at coming up with mildly, sometimes not mildly, suggestive things to write on the balloon. <laughs> and then they would run around and call, they would go looking for the guy and he would be saying something like, whatever the suggestive thing was on the balloon. And that's how they knew that's the party that was going to be seen. Yep. Yep. So that got viral back before anybody knew what viral was, you know. So those are some of the marketing things that informed me and really made us a ton of money. Oh my lord. You talked, and I think this is incredibly important. It's something I think we do a pretty good job of at Gorilla. I think it's agnostic to industry. I, I don't know that it matters if you're in the food and beverage or manufacturing or marketing, but you said that you paid people well. And I think we do the same thing at Gorilla. And I think it's so easy for people in decision-making positions to think, all right, let's cut it as tight as possible. Let's, But the cost of turnover is just so significant. Almost nobody quantifies that. Exactly. And you have such, you have low turnover. Like, I know that's something that really- You don't have any. Exactly. So- can you talk about that? I mean, whether it's the role that pay has or whether it's just your approach to what you're doing to kind of keep those turnover numbers down. Sure. So let me just 
I'll connect the dot for you because I think yeah, yeah, yeah. the restaurant business is hard. Yep. My father was in it. Brutal. It's brutal. Okay. I mean, just physically to do the job, you work all day to get ready to work all night. And people don't understand that. And it's in the kitchen, especially not the front house, back house, hard jobs, if they're done correctly. And it's hot. You add the heat in the kitchen, right? And Let's look at, there's so many restaurants that are on the brink or just barely making it. And so they can't tell their landlord or the, that they're going to pay less in rent. They can't not pay their note on the building if they happen to own the building. They can't pay the food suppliers 80 cents on the dollar. They can't skimp there. None of that is variable. What they end up doing is squeezing the employees. And that's why so many employees have such a bad experience, you know, and and they, they churn. Well, I just decided early on, I'm not going to squeeze the employees. I'm just going to raise my prices. And everybody said I was crazy. And I said, look, if the product's good enough, people will come. And when I say the product, it's the whole product. You know, the way Jean-Michel taught me, your ex- the experience at your restaurant starts before they ever get to your restaurant. It starts when they call you on the phone for a reservation. Right. How are they greeted? Do they get a machine that says, you know, please listen carefully because our menu options have changed 12 years ago you know, or whatever. I mean, but or are they greeted pleasantly by somebody that's able to help? Them? And it's, it's like if you just manage every aspect of the experience from the from making the reservation to the greeting at the front door to sending them home with a little treat box and provide a convivial experience where you try to treat them with respect because, you know, you don't know how long a person had to work to be able to afford what they're going to pay for because we, we charge a lot. But that's what I do in the manufacturing business. I know that's a really bizarre segment. I don't think it is at all. I see the parallel. This is so much the same for side. First of all, if somebody wants to come work here and they, they, they have a long experience or are currently working in food service in a restaurant environment, I almost always hire them because it works out. Case in point, Nikki, or we have this, she was hired as a project manager. I'm pretty sure she does my job now, but we were watching, my girlfriend and I were at this place where she worked and she was very clearly pregnant. I mean, very pregnant. And we, were, we knew her and we were talking to her and she said, yeah, I'm going to maternity leave and I'm not coming back to the restaurant business. You know, I did, that's my third kid. I, I can't work every night. I hired her on the spot. I said, just, just come. Well, she, you know, just when you're done with your leave, show up. And, you know, we offered her the same amount of money that she would make in a typical year, which is actually shockingly pretty a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I didn't flinch. And she had a rough 30, 60, 90 days. You know, she just couldn't get her head wrapped around it. And then after talking to her a couple of times, just talking not to her, with her, you know, listening. And it's like, dude, just deal with people like you in the restaurant at the bar or waiting tables or whatever. And something clicked her. And from that week, I mean, she's indispensable. She just handles all our customers. You know, after they make a purchase, it can take 20 weeks for us to build a system. So there's a lot of customer interaction. She went from not knowing a damn thing about this business, not knowing anything about our products or anything. She's now all over it. But she had those soft skills, right? Like that's, those are the sure. things that are hard to teach, I think. <laughs> you, you either have it or you don't. I think that's true. I'm not sure I can teach somebody if they don't have the desire to 
be of service. I'm not sure I can inculcate in them the desire to be of service. And, you know, I used to tell my wait staff, you know, the trick is to be ready, willing, and available at all times. Now, that's really hard to do when you have seven, eight tables. And, but it's also really hard to do when you have 400 customers in the manufacturing business, you know, because you're not just dealing with the ones you're building something for right now. You're dealing with the ones you're calling with questions. You're dealing with service and long-term care and all these things. And it gets complex. And so, but I parallel it to this business to, you know, manufacturing, especially heavy manufacturing like we do, is hard work. It's old school, hot, heavy work for a lot of these guys and gals. And they don't necessarily, in the shop, you know, they're not necessarily pulling down. There's only so much a welder can be paid. Right. Absolutely. There's only so much that, you know, a mechanical assembler can be paid. We try to be at the top end of that. So we have to realize it's grueling work. And it's hard on their bodies. You know, it gets hot as hell out there. In the summer in Missouri, it can get brutal. I can't imagine. It's just like the kitchen, man. (laughs) You're on your feet eight, ten hours a day on concrete, heavy work, welding, cutting, running machinery, whatever it is. And you have to have a massive amount of respect for people that show up and do that every day. So we try to do that and we try to treat everybody like family. We're not real rigid about, well, obviously rigid about safety rules, but we're not super rigid about your typical HR stuff. Right. Right. Cause everybody has stuff that comes up in their lives. And sometimes they just have to go and take time to deal with it. And they don't need to be further stressed out that they think they're going to somehow be penalized at work. So I've more than times than I can count in the last 10 years here. Somebody just has an emergency. They, they ask for, hey, you know, I don't have any vacation up. I got to go out of town and take care of my mom or whatever. I say, go. What I don't tell them is I'm going to pay you anyway. When they come back and find out that they actually got a paycheck and they just didn't get you know, unpaid time off. Imagine the impact that has. Well, it's as you think about it, it's it's not only the right thing to do. But it's also just a smart business decision. I mean, again, when you think of the cost of turnover and when you think of the cost of unhappy employees. Yeah, why why would you want? Why would you risk that? It, it makes no sense. I wouldn't. But, you know, it's like anything else. It's like we're a very flat organization. Yeah, I, I was hoping you were going to get into that. So perfect. I also get that from the restaurant industry because there's no, you know, yes, there's a chef and there's a, on, on paper, there's a chef and there's a, a sous chef and then. There's line cooks. I never ran it like that. We each had an area we were responsible for, and we expected each other to be responsible for for those things that he or she was accountable, period. And that was it. Uh, The only role I used to play was there was a dispute. People couldn't get along wherever I would settle it. But, you know, it's not like with command and control because command and control is an illusion, in my opinion. You know, these companies with these hierarchies, well, here's the CEO and then here's these six people and they each have their people and the CEO never talks to people way down there. And it's like, nonsense, stop. If you think you're actually in control that way, you are living in la-la land, man, because people don't behave like that. That's not human nature. You know, we have obvious areas of responsibility, engineering, okay, that comprises electrical and mechanical engineering. Programming, 
oh, every one of our systems has to be programmed, right? Not only the robots, but all of the machines is commanded by central, essentially a computer. That's called a PLC, a programmable logic computer. That all has to be instructed by software, by code. So we have a programming. We have manufacturing, obviously. So that's an area we call a director of manufacturing, a director of engineering, we have a director of program. We used to have parts and service. We realized that we had a giant hole. Nobody was, we were pretty good at selling the stuff and engineering it. We're pretty good at making it. And we were really good at installing it and starting it up and training the people. But that period of time from once we got the purchase order until it shipped was like nobody's responsibility. It was like a duh moment, you know, it's like, so we, we changed product uh, sort of parts and service into system lifecycle management. And the minute we get an order, that group takes over. And that's the, the project major, Nikki, I was talking about. And she is, you know, the face and the voice and the contact point of, of, for all our customers. And she works for a guy who who's responsible for that and parts and service and customer training and all that. And they basically hold the hand of the customer from the minute they commit to spending a million dollars with us or whatever it is. Because the system can easily be between our average system is probably 600,000, but they can get as high as 3 million. When people are punking down that kind of money, their expectations need to be managed and you know, their need for information needs to be fulfilled. And we weren't doing a good job of that. We're doing a good job of it now. But each person knows okay, these are our. Um, we have obviously uh, administration, HR, and finance. So that's another bucket. Yep. So each area of accountability is, has written down things that they're accountable for, and they were all kind of agreed upon by the whole group. And they're held accountable. And it's like, for a long time, they would come to me and want me to make a decision. And I would say, oh, I actually learned this when my, my kids were in college. They would call with some horrible sad tale of whatever whatever the problem was i need know. money that's what i always called my parents but. yeah you're right you know they, they were having trouble with you know whatever it was you know and, and i would listen like a good dad and i would say you know what marco that really sucks what are you going to do about that and i would just shut up let him figure out how to fix it not what he was hoping to hear yeah but he learned and he grew up he's a hell of an individual now because of that and many other things you know and I would ask, you know, somebody would come to me and say, huh, that sucks, man. That's a tough one. Have you asked that, your other managers what they think? Always the same thing. No. Really? And they got the message. You know, I, I was just very stiff. You know, obviously, if it was something that was about to blow up. and Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a little judgment there. But it's just the same thing as a parent. When you, you know your kids are going to make a mistake and it kills you because you got to watch them make it. Obviously, if it's something that could be life-altering or threatening or of egregious consequences, you step in and maybe make something nice. But uh, the small mistakes people make in life, you know, you got to sometimes as a parent stand back. You know, okay. You want to pay that tuition, right? Right. You know, I think I know what's going to happen next. And that's worked out for me as a dad. And it's working out for me here as a C-level guy here. But... My area of responsibility is, I, I think of it as the mission of the company. So we have a very good mission. And it's my responsibility to make sure we stay true to that. You know, and that we're firing on all cylinders in each department in support of that mission. 
and in support of our customers. I learned a long time ago from one of the greatest restaurateurs, a couple of very simple rules, but something like this, it went, uh, make every decision and see everything through the customer's eyes. And that was it. So short and sweet. So simple. So many of us do it wrong. I, I mean, I do it wrong all the time. Me too, but I'm trying not to. Sometimes I joke, I say, you know what? This sucks. I think what we should do is just get rid of all these customers. And then we won't have any of these problems. You know, everybody yeah. gets the point, right? But, you know, it's like anything else. You know, treat them. See, what's this feel like if you were to magically be in their shoes? And some, you know, senior mid-level, senior level guy, you know, whatever, is placed an order with you for 800 grand. And he's getting grilled by his bosses. How would you feel if you were that person, you know, having to go to your boss and not have the answers or whatever it was? So think about it that way and realize that's why you got to respond quickly. That's why you got to give them straight answers. If you make a mistake, you got to call them up and say, hey, we screwed this up, but here's what we're going to do to fix it. Because they'll understand that everybody makes mistakes. Just don't ever try to cover them up. Before we wrap, there's something that there's kind of two things, and I think they tie to this and tie to the flat organization. But and I love that early on in the this episode, you could hear a little of some chatter in the background, which I'm glad you could hear. It wasn't distracting. I don't have a door. Well, exactly. And, and and I mean, that's I want to touch on that as well as you told me that if you ever find yourself talking about someone and that person's not there, stop the conversation. They need to be there. Happened to me yesterday. Yeah, talk about that. So we have a rule here. If two or more people, management people, are talking about another management person in a negative way, or something, a criticism, some negative thing, you have to stop the conversation right there and go fetch that person and finish your conversation with that person in front. Okay. I got called out yesterday on it. It was so great. I mean, I was talking about something. I'm like, God, thank you. Whatever. whatever yeah. Else. And then the guy that runs life cycle management said, Hey man, we got a rule. You're supposed to, supposed to have Nick here. (laughs) Amen, brother. Thank you. It's a hard one, but I can talk about this forever. There's this culture of candor that you have to foster closed door meetings. Don't make it for me. You know, if it's really super sensitive or it's private information of HR nature, there's laws and, you know, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. You close the door and talk to shop. I'm not crazy, you know, break the rules here. You know, I don't want to break the law and violate somebody's privacy. But generally speaking, it's, if you're going to have a conversation, you shouldn't care who hears. It. You shouldn't be uh, annoying other people you know, when you're trying to concentrate or whatever. But you know what I'm saying? Just closed door, hush, hush. Yeah. Well, it also creates accessibility as well, right? Like people have access to you. Yeah, they have to. I mean, they got to know I care. But we're small. We're 75 people. Whatever. I mean, but that's a lot of people to keep track of and remember their spouse's name and try to remember their kid's name and what schools their kids are in. I really try to remember all that because I want to be sensitive to what that person might be going through. Like true empathy. Yeah. Every now and then I have to tell somebody, sit them down and say, you know, that situation that happened on Thursday, I think the way you handled that was really not great. You know, I have to have those conversations sometimes. Like I got to have one today. Yeah. And it's like a newer engineering employee kind of dressed down one of the electricians in a way that's, no, we don't behave that way. And it's not like I'm not going to have a good, I'm not going to tear the guy apart. I'm just going to say, look, 
here's why we don't behave that way. I tell people what race shorts are. There was this cop directing traffic or whatever he was doing. And I didn't realize that it was a funeral thing because none of the cars were marked. And then there was a gap in cars. Obviously, I could go. So I started to go. He freaked out on me. I mean, he just came over to my window, stopped me, rah, 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 rah. And, and I'm like, I'm like, what? This is a I, so none of the cars are marked. I didn't know. And he's looking at me. I said, I'm sorry you're having a bad day. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it's like, treat people like humans, because we are. There's another, the flat organization thing, I actually wrote a short essay and published it on LinkedIn about it. But there's a caption, there's a cartoon top of it. It's a guy that says, Hey, does anybody know where we keep the hidden rules? <laughs> but it's been hard. It's been hard to get people to buy in because they think this can't be real. This much autonomy, this much freedom and flexibility can't be real. It is real, man, except guess what? You own the results. And so we have these, we have quarterly monkeys. Tell me when I'm going too far. No, you're fine. When people come to you to, with a problem, they're trying to, each department has what we call monkeys on your back, you know, problems, issues you got to fix. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take a monkey off their back and put it on yours. Yeah. Take that monkey with you. We say the same exact, we read that somewhere. I think we read that in the same book because I, I love that concept. So I actually put it in practice. We have our quarterly monkeys meetings. It's just the management team. And you said, you know, you were going to address this, this, and this. How's it going? What can we do to help? What can anybody do to help you know? And that's really helped us focus because really the thing is, is focus, you know, it's keeping focused on customer, keeping focused on what's best for the customer, what has to happen for us to be healthy. You know, we, Sandy likes, my girlfriend Sandy likes to say, it has to be the right solution for the customer's problem. The customer has to be happy and Pasco has to make money. And I actually tell customers that straight up. Those are the three legs of the stool. You can make me build you something which we think is not the right solution. If you pay me enough money, I'm going to build it for you with the caveat that I told you so. You know, and we can make a ton of money, but the customer ends up without the right solution. Even though the guy executive that put it in place is happy because he got promoted and he's now on another plan. So it's funny how any one of those things can go awry very quickly, you know, and so you have to maintain focus and you have to keep thinking about it. You have to be able to call the customer and say, John, I've been thinking about this and I think you're making a mistake. And here's why. And it's really hard to tell customers that sometimes, you know. Oh, yeah. Just is, it is, but you got to do it. But it is the right thing to do. Yeah. But you got to own your monkeys, you know. And then the hierarchy that builds up here is one of competence. So it, within these different organizations, you know, within the, the departments, let's call them. And there ends up being a hierarchy of, of ability, of competence. It's meritocracy. And the best engineers, the most capable, hardworking engineers tend to get the cool new projects, right? You know, there's something new has to be designed from a blank screen, blank sheet of paper, as we used to say. Some guys excel at that. Some guys couldn't do that to save their life. Yet they're competent engineers, right? So it's like not everybody can write a novel. Right. Or at least a good one. And so... Those are, the people had really, it took about four years and I had to be as patient as, oh my God, I had to be patient. And that's the other thing. Well, if you're going to have a flat organization, man, you have to be patient. You can't abandon it. You've got to stick with it and realize that people take time to accept 
accept this is really the way it is. And you'll find that a lot of people don't want to accept accountability. They're, they're not. We have another poster I had made. It says, I saw it outside outside of a Steve Jobs office on Apple. It's 20 years ago. It said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And I had one made for the break room that says that. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Well, and that was like the whole ethos of that company even. I mean, that was just his mentality. Yeah, I loved it. I wish I had half of his. Did you ever read the Walter Isaacson book? Oh, my God, yes. So Incredible. I mean, you know, that humbles the rest of us, right? It really does. So, you know, we try to bring all these qualities. We try. We even take it all the way down to the bonus structure. Uh, you might find this interesting. What we do, we, we, we every hourly employee, like we call them direct labor for accounting purposes. We, we list all, however many, 60 of them or whatever. And then to the next the next column, it's like, okay, this guy's been here four years. This guy's been here 11 years, so on. We add up all the years and that, that equals, okay, that's last year, I think it was 467 years or something like that. Holy cow. And that equals 100%. So if you've been here five years, you get five divided by that number. You get 5% of that. Wow. That's significant. It is because it's here are things. It rewards longevity. I right? love it. Yeah. We got guys here 36 years. But what we do is we say, is he an A player, a B player, or a C player? And so if you're an A player, you get 1.4 times you're allotted. If you're a B player, you get one straight up 100% of whatever your number is. And if you're only a C player, meaning we're always having to deal with you, your work is not good, like to work all the whatever you're still, you don't get done, whatever they choose, you, you get 0.6% of what you should have got. So you only get 60%. And so that's how we allow each department lead to make it right. Yeah. And, you know, you hand some guy a check for $28,000 Christmas. That's, you know, that's a big damn deal. You know, I, we had a guy, more than one guy, take a $50,000 check home. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how much is in the pool, right? Right. So Yeah. You win as a team, lose as a team, right? Yeah. So we give back 20% of the profit of the company to the employees every year if we've reached a certain profitability, right? Yeah. If, if we haven't, then guess what? We didn't make it this year. Now, it's been a long time since we didn't make it. Sometimes Sandy and I will decide to take it out of our pockets. But especially if it's a mistake that wasn't, some things happen, you know, but very rarely do we not pay a bonus. But that's how we do it. Well, I, I think you've clearly shed a lot of light on why your culture is why I could feel that culture when I walked in. I mean, there's a ton I've learned. I think we, we need to think about another episode here down the line to get you on again to talk more because I feel like we could talk for hours about this stuff. But in terms of just if if people want to learn more about Pasco, learn more about you, what's the best way for them to, to get in touch with you? Send me an email. Okay. It's just my, you know, just my last name, Narduli at PascoSystems.com. And I'm sure you're on LinkedIn and Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You probably should avoid my Twitter feed because I'm <laughs> aggressively I'm aggressively libertarian. Let's just say that. Hey, I respect it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jim. Really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, I love your work. You're gonna find out how much pretty soon. I love it. And uh, you know, we're just getting our ducks in a row on some of that stuff. 
you guys are really, I get you, you know? We appreciate it. We're trying to learn from our mistakes and our tuition that we've paid and so far, so good. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Employer. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Employer Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about our approach to industrial marketing and the role that company culture has in moving manufacturing forward, visit Gorilla76.com.